Let's turn in our copies of God's Word together to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, verses 9, and the first half of verse 10 this evening. We'll read from verse 8 for context. Let us join our hearts together in prayer. O Lord, speak now, for your servants listen. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last time in verse 8, we received a sobering call to watchfulness. Paul gave that comprehensive warning against all that is not according to Christ. All that is not according to Christ is empty deceit, as it says there in verse 8. It is false. It cannot satisfy. It is of this sin-cursed world. And we saw there that as you give yourself to such things, if you take in the teaching the lifestyle, the habits, the mindsets, the practices, the values of this lower fallen realm of earth, then you fail to appreciate the fullness of grace that is yours in Jesus Christ. Moving on now from verse 8 to verses 9 and 10, we move from the negative to the positive. In a sense, verses 9 and 10 answer a question raised by verse 8. We could put it this way. How can you and I avoid the empty deceit of all that is not according to Christ? Answer, by taking advantage of the whole fullness of heavenly grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. That is the main idea. Let us dig into that main idea in two ways. First of all, we see Christ's fullness. Christ's fullness in verse 9. Look there again at verse 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That first word there, translated for, connects back to the command in verse 8, which was in verse 8, see to it. Or you could translate that, be vigilant, be on the lookout. Verse 9 begins by answering why the command in verse 8 is given. What is the reason for vigilance and being watchful against captivity to empty deceit? Why is human tradition to be avoided? Why should believers not give themselves to the fundamental principles of this lower earthly sin-cursed realm? Those are good questions, and verses 9 and 10 give a very good answer to those questions. Why should you avoid the empty deceit of what is human and worldly? Because you have all fullness of deity in Jesus Christ. Notice the contrast 
in verse 8, as well as verses 9 and 10. Verse 8 on the one hand, verses 9 and 10 on the other. It's a contrast of opposites here. Instead of empty deceit, you have fullness in Jesus Christ. Instead of what is according to human tradition, you have the fullness of deity in Jesus Christ. Instead of the skewed fundamental principles of this sin-dominated world that we find ourselves in, well, by implication, the fullness that is yours in Jesus Christ is a heavenly fullness, the true beginning, a real foretaste of the nearness and dwelling place of God with His redeemed people in paradise. For all that this world has to offer, with all of its glitz and glamour, it lacks the fullness that comes only in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the reason for the command back in verse 8. Don't be taken captive by the world's empty deceit. Why? Because the whole fullness of deity dwells in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the antidote to error and worldliness. Now the language here in verse 9, verses 9 and 10, the language of fullness is significant here and elsewhere in Scripture. Fullness is totality. It is completeness or sufficiency. Fullness means there is nothing left over, nothing excluded, nothing to be added or supplemented. There are two distinct yet related ways that the language of fullness is used here in verses 9 and 10, particularly in verse 9. Fullness communicates both the full deity of Jesus Christ as well as the fullness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. So within this first main point, let's look at those two senses of what Christ's fullness is. So first of all, fullness communicates the full deity of Jesus Christ, his full deity. This was made clear already back in that Christ hymn in chapter 1, especially verses 15 through 17. Listen to the the confession of faith, chapter 8, paragraph 2, when it says, summarizing Scripture, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Already we can praise God for the glorious mystery of the God-man. Jesus Christ is not a God-like man. He is the God-man. All that is in God is in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is God. The union of the divine person of the, Son, of the Son of God, of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the union of His person with a true human nature does not divinize the human. It does not humanize the divine. It does not temporalize eternity, nor does it eternalize time. Herman Boving points out that to mingle, 
to confuse the divine and human natures of Christ would actually impoverish the fullness which is in Christ. The divine nature and the human nature of Jesus Christ are not mixed together in, a, in some sort of odd mishmash. A confusion of the divine and the human would actually subtract from the, both the divine and the human, and in turn, Christ would be less than fullness. Bavink goes on, that fullness is maintained only if both natures are distinguished from each other, communicating their properties and attributes not to each other, but placing them rather in the service of the one person. So it is always the same rich Christ who in his humiliation and exaltation commands the properties and powers of both natures and who precisely by that means can bring those works to pass which as the works of the mediator are distinguished on the one hand from the works of God and on the other hand from the works of man and which take a unique place in the history of the world. Do you see, believer, the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ? There is no one like this glorious Savior. He is in a class all by himself. I cannot begin to explain to you how marvelous the person of Jesus Christ is, But better than explaining him, I call you now to look upon his face. Listen to how B.B. Warfield leads us through this glorious mystery. The glory of the incarnation is that it presents to our adoring gaze not a humanized God or a deified man, but a true God-man, one who is all that God is and at the same time all that man is on whose almighty arm we can rest, and to whose human sympathy we can appeal. We cannot afford to lose either the God in the man or the man in the God. Our hearts cry out for the complete God-man whom the Scriptures offer us. It may be much to say that it is because He is man that He is capable of growth and wisdom, and because He is God that He is from the beginning wisdom itself. It is more to say that because he is man, he is able to pour out his blood, and because he is God, his blood is of infinite value to save. And that it is only because he is both God and man in one person that we can speak of God purchasing his church with his own blood, Acts 20, 28. And unless God has purchased his church with his own blood, in what shall his church find a ground for its hope. So the language of fullness here in Colossians 2 points up the full deity of Jesus Christ. The entire undivided, simple divine essence subsisting as the Son took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul in the fullness of time 2,000 years ago to save sinners like you and me. That leads us to consider now the next way that the language of fullness is used here. Secondly, still within our our first main point, second use of fullness, the biblical language of fullness also communicates grace, the fullness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.9 shows us something important about the work of Christ as well as about his person. All the fullness of deity in Jesus Christ means, get this, An overflowing abundance of grace resides in Jesus Christ, grace that has never been seen before in all of history. 
That is the primary sense, I think, of Paul's language of fullness here. Jesus Christ, as the God-man, as God for us, He is the fullness of God's grace for God's people. Think about how we've seen Christ's fullness already up to this point in Colossians. If you look back at chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness by implication of God, all the fullness was pleased to dwell. There, Paul is speaking in particular about who Christ is as risen from the dead, as the head of the church. In other words, Christ's fullness there in chapter 1 has to do with redemption in particular. Unlike anything or anyone in all creation, Jesus Christ is the recipient of exceptional favor and blessing. Jesus Christ is categorically unique. Why? Because in his resurrection, he lives now and forever by the power of an indestructible life. Hebrews 7:16. He has been raised from the dead never to die again. Romans chapter 6. As the firstborn from the dead, here in chapter 1 verse 18, he is the beginning of the resurrection. The resurrection has begun In his resurrection, he has blazed the trail into a new order of things. As Herman Ritterboss puts it, Christ is the pioneer, the inaugurator who opened up the way. With him, the great resurrection became reality. And very similar is the meaning of firstborn from the dead. He ushers in the world of the resurrection. He has brought life and incorruptibility to light. So already here, do you see how the language of fullness has to do with redemption, fullness of grace, fullness of grace that has never been seen before in God's covenant? The fullness that dwells in Jesus Christ is the fullness of a new life. In Christ, there is a new kind of life, not earthly life which comes to an end, but of heavenly life which never ends. In Jesus Christ, we already have a taste, a true beginning of resurrection life because he has been raised from the dead and now sits at God's right hand in heaven. Going out of of Paul's epistles for a moment, the Apostle John uses also this language of fullness to communicate the fullness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Think of John chapter 1, verses 14 and following. And the word was made flesh... And dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received, that is, grace upon grace. Did you hear that language of grace and fullness there in John chapter 1? Receiving from Christ's fullness is to receive grace upon grace. You could translate that phrase in John 1 grace, and then again, more grace. Christ's fullness, as John makes explicit, means an abundance, a fullness of grace. Again, Herman Ritterboss makes the point that John is speaking of the accumulation of more grace, more grace than had ever been displayed before in the coming of Jesus Christ. 
Think of how John goes on in John 1.17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, don't misunderstand. The time of the law, the time God's covenant dealings were through Moses and David and the prophets with the people of Israel, that was a time of God's grace. God was gracious to Israel in the shadows and the types of the law, the sacrifices during the time of the law. What sweet grace was communicated to Israel when the animal sacrifice bore the penalty of death in place of the worshipers? What sweet grace was communicated to Israel when the high priest brought the names of the tribes on the ephod he wore over his heart as he ministered in the tabernacle where God was? What sweet grace was communicated to Israel when the sins of the people were transferred to the scapegoat and that scapegoat would be led outside the camp bearing away the sin and guilt of Israel, led away from the presence of God to die in the wilderness so that Israel would have life instead of death. But as wonderful as all these things were, they did not communicate the fullness of God's grace. All these things were copies and shadows, as the book of Hebrews makes clear. But you and I today, believer... We do not come into God's presence in an earthly tabernacle, but in heaven itself, because Christ has ascended there to God's right hand, bringing us with him. We do not come into God's presence through a revolving door of sinful priests, but through the once and for all finished work of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. We do not come into God's presence through the blood of bulls and goats, which are powerless in themselves, but through Jesus Christ, who has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9.26. Our Old Testament brothers and sisters, they knew God's grace, make no mistake about it, but they did not know grace like you and I know it. They knew Christ yet to come, We know him who has already come. They awaited the accomplishment of redemption. We enjoy the the accomplishment of redemption. They knew grace, but we know grace upon grace. So this biblical language of fullness has to do with grace, the full manifestation of God's grace, the accomplishment of redemption by God's grace. It's as if throughout Israel's history, the moon was shining, a lesser light of grace. But now that Christ has come, because of his bloodstained cross and empty tomb, the sunrise of grace has dawned upon his church, shining greater light of grace than had ever been seen before. Jesus Christ, now raised from the dead, is the ever-accessible and inexhaustible fountain of grace as Ritter Boss puts it. No more occasional sacrifices because the perfect once and for all sacrifice has been made. No more occasional access into the earthly tabernacle for some of God's people, but now there is constant access for all believers into the heavenly throne room of God himself, united with the ascended Christ who is seated at God's right hand. 
This, dear congregation, is grace upon grace. This is the fullness of God's grace and our fully sufficient Savior. There is nothing to be added to His perfect work, nothing to supplement, nothing to add. He has left nothing undone. Christ's fullness, dear congregation, means that there is grace, that there is more grace, that there is even more grace, that you will never run out of grace. And as James says in chapter 4, he giveth more grace. Which leads us secondly, second main point, we've seen Christ's fullness. Now secondly, the church's fullness. The church's fullness in verse 10, first half of verse 10. Which reads, and you have been filled in him. So if verse 9 was about fullness, verse 10 is about filling, the filling of that fullness. Christ's fullness of grace is what fills the church and every believer in and of the church. We saw earlier that there is a contrast between verse 8 on the one hand and verses 9 and 10 on the other. Here in verse 10, there's another element of that contrast. On the one hand, notice in verse 8, the emptiness of the world is something for the church to avoid. There is a command there. See to it that you are not taken captive by worldliness. Be watchful against worldliness. The command there in verse 8 is obvious. But on the other hand, here in verse 10, notice that the fullness of Christ is not something for the church to pursue. There is no command here in verse 10. Verses 9 and 10. Rather, the fullness of Christ is something the church already has. The command in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by empty deceit, that command in verse 8 is not matched by a similar command in verses 9 and 10. Something that would be like, see to it that you rather pursue the fullness that is in Christ. That is not how Paul contrasts avoiding worldliness with what we have in Jesus Christ. That's not what Paul says. The command to avoid emptiness in verse 8 is not matched by a complementary command in verses 9 and 10 to pursue the fullness that is in Christ. We are not told to do anything here. We are told rather what we already have right now in Jesus Christ. We are not given a command. We are given a free, gracious promise instead You, church of the Lord Jesus, have been filled in him. The grammar is is interesting here. There is a verb and a participle, a present active verb with a perfect passive participle, which just means the thought would be something like, you are having been filled. So Paul is communicating something rich, something glorious here, that all believers individually and together, are filled with the fullness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. When did that take place? The moment you first believed. This took place at conversion. When you, believer, were united to Jesus Christ, trusting in Him, being given new life to take hold of Him as He was offered to you in the gospel, you entered into, as Rutherford talks about it, a bottomless and brimless ocean of grace. You were filled at that point in time when you came to Christ, and that filling is a new condition that characterizes you permanently. 
This new condition took place in the past when you came to Christ, united to him by faith, but this condition continues on forever, defining you, making you who you are as the recipient of the presence of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Similar to what Paul speaks of in Romans 5, think of this similar language in Romans 5, 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is now who you are, believer. You are under the gracious deluge of the love of a heavenly Father indwelt by the Holy Spirit of adoption who shall never forsake you in union with your elder brother Jesus Christ from whom nothing in all creation can separate you. The language of fullness here in Colossians has also to do with the dwelling of God's presence, the dwelling in God's presence, His presence of grace. Think of this in the Psalms. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or Psalm 65, 4, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts, we shall be satisfied or be filled with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. And so Christ's fullness of grace is more specifically full access to God himself, having him as our blessedness and reward to glorify and enjoy him, as our standards put it, to dwell in his courts, to taste and see that he is good, to know his friendship and to love him as he loves us. It's what Voss spoke of when he said, to be a Christian is to live one's life not merely in obedience to God, nor merely in dependence on God, nor even merely for the sake of God. It is to stand in conscious, reciprocal fellowship with God to be identified with him in thought and purpose and work, to receive from him and give back to him in the ceaseless interplay of spiritual forces. It is this direct confrontation of the religious mind with God which finds in the covenant idea its perfect expression. To be in covenant with God, what finer and what more adequate definition of the perfect religious life could be conceived than this? More importantly than what Voss said is what Paul himself prayed for the church elsewhere in Ephesians 3. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now in conclusion, I'm sure not a few of you are thinking, That's all well and good, but I don't feel like any of that is true, at least for me. Believe me, I sympathize. The miseries of this life, our own remaining corruption, the world, 
the evil one, are bitter and difficult enemies to combat with, enemies that we cannot combat with in our own strength. But let me encourage you, believer, in this way. As you meditate upon, as you wrestle with the fullness of God's grace, the fullness of God's presence for you in Christ, think through what that fullness means specifically. The fullness of His grace means that it is there when you feel like it and when you don't feel like it. His fullness means that as you keep going to Him, you will find new things. His grace is, again, as Rutherford put it, a bottomless and brimless ocean. If you went scuba diving, there's no way I could tell you what beautiful things you would see. You can explore the ocean constantly and always find new things or be refreshed in finding things you've seen before. You will see different animals and reefs and different manifestations of God's beauty and glory in creation. That is something, very little, but something of what Christ's fullness means for you. I don't know what particular grace you need right now. I don't know just how Christ will manifest his fullness to you where you are now, but I promise you, I promise you this on the authority of God's word, when you go to him, when you seek his face, you will not be disappointed. You will be pleasantly, gloriously surprised by how full his fullness is and is for you. There is nothing to add to Christ. There is nothing he lacks. He is the total package. The only thing left for you to do is buckle up and receive of his fullness. As he tells us in Psalm 81.10, I am the Lord your God. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Amen. And may God add his blessing to the preaching of his word.